Money Rules or Money Rules. Here at Hold My Wealth, we are all about empowering financial success in our community of listeners. We hope you find today's topic both informative and helpful. Hi, and welcome to the Hold My Wealth podcast, Money Rules, Money Rules. I'm your host, Stephen Logan, and with me as always is Hamish Ferguson. Hamish, thank you for coming. No problems at all, Steve. Lovely to be here. Hamish is a founding member of Help My Wealth and also one of the experienced professionals who author the learning modules that we use on investments. Today, we have our special guest, which is Crystal Parker, who is my business owner of Verve Partners in Newcastle. Crystal, could you please tell our audience a little bit about Verve and yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'm one of the directors at Verve Partners. Um, Verve Partners being the name for the last, oh, since the beginning of the year, so the last sort of eight months. Um, previously, Monica Clare, um, which has been in business for around about seven and a half years. Um, we are a recruitment and HR consultancy firm um, and have work across a multiple um, multiple disciplines um, within the white collar sector of, of recruiting temporary and permanent in Newcastle, and we have an office in Wollongong as well. Mm. Yeah. And so you've been with them for how long now? I've been with them for three years, um, been in the recruitment industry for over 15 years. Just a short time. Just a short time. <laughs> Started when I was a baby. Mm. It's a small world. I met um, Elizabeth from Randstad the other day, who oh, I yeah. believe you used to work with. Yeah, yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. anyway, so that didn't we didn't talk much about you, but it was it was just interesting to sort of go, okay, small world, because I didn't realise you were in recruitment beforehand. For some reason, I thought you were doing something a little bit left field of that. So yeah, mm, yeah. Anyway. well, not too much to talk about anyway. No, so yeah, no, all good. Yeah. Um, and so when you talk about, uh, I guess the white collar professionals. So you guys, yeah. um, my understanding is you've got specialists in different industries. Industries. Is that we right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we work across a broad range of disciplines that ranges from you know, legal, engineering, construction, marketing, HR, IT, um, and then your general office support and account support side of things. And then um, my business partner and one of my other directors, um, Simon, he runs our executive search arm of the business as well. So mm. we do that high-end exec search and that's that's Australia-wide mm. um, so that he can, you know, really tap into that market. Yeah, okay. All right. And so we'll probably talk a little bit about, you know, the the recruitment industry and that sort of thing a little bit later. But coming back to what Steve was saying, so tell us a little bit about you as well and your journey and how did you end up at Verve? Yeah. um, So as I said, 15 years in recruitment. Um, I worked for a tier one firm um, prior to coming over called Randstad and I was with them for close to 12 years. Um, And uh, I actually had um, crossed paths with uh, Claire, my business partner and co-founder of Verve Partners. Um, sorry, founder, um, a number of times and uh, she had offered me to come over and join her um, in the space of two, two and a half years twice and I politely declined. I wasn't quite ready at that point in time and um, and I always said to her if anything changed, she would be the first to know and uh, during uh, during COVID there were a few things I guess that um that were challenging as a as a manager because I was the state manager for our blue collar business um, across New South Wales and had multiple branches and there were a lot of decisions that had to be made that unfortunately didn't sit well with me. It was very impactful for um, employees um, and and quite difficult mm. um, knowing 
um, the impacts that I was having on their livelihoods. Um, so I had made a, a, a made a decision at that point in time that my alignment was no longer there. It was time to go, but unfortunately, it wasn't a great time. It was in um, it was in June 2020, right in the middle of COVID. Mm. Um, so I did ring Claire and um, said, "Look, I, I did always promise you you'd be my first call, and I know this is the worst time ever for you to receive this call, but um, I'm I'm I've left Randstad and I'm I'm available, and I'll be looking for my for my next uh, journey. And you know, uh, in true fashion of Claire, oh my God, oh you know, she's like, oh, what do I do with that information? I will call you back. And I think I had a call back within 15 minutes, and she said, we are meeting tomorrow. Right. <laughs> so um, uh, after you've done your COVID tests, yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. And so yeah, and then the rest is history. We mm. um, I started with with um, the business in uh, August 2020. Mm. I think. And, COVID was a big disruptor for a lot of people. So, you know, um, you hear that story so often of people changing jobs or rethinking about their life or their direction or where they wanted to go. I, I really pushed forward um, probably, you know, where, where people were heading anyway, mm. but it brought it forward a lot further. Would you say that's probably similar for you? It made you think through that? Yeah, and I think with uh, – you're absolutely correct. And COVID itself – and this is very, very common trend that had occurred. It gave everyone a self-reflection moment. Totally. What am I doing? Um, do my values and my ethics um, still align with this organisation and this employer? And, you know, have I only just been, you know, working here because, you know, I just didn't want to have to go through the change? Yeah. Um, so everyone went through that self-reflection moment yep. of really, what am I here for? Mm, yep. And I think that's also... Um, um, reflective of the fact that because everyone had to slow down, they had yes. time. They had time to think about it. Yes. So that's where the the impact of you know um, people moving, changing industries, changing sectors, starting whole new careers in in completely different areas have come from because mm. the self reflection and and you're absolutely correct. I, I had that self reflection moment because I knew that my my alignment was no longer there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I've heard that a lot. Do you know, mm-hmm. anyone from, you know, something as sort of like a, a bari or, or, you know, someone working in a cafe right through to high-end industry, you know, people were like, hang on, is this what I want to be doing? Yeah. I've been here for three years or four years or treading water or, you know, maybe when COVID's over I should look at something else. Mm. Yeah, and to give context to the, the, the first two times where, you know, Claire had spoken to me and said, you know, come and join us, you know, and, and made those offers, I guess the the... The reason I declined was, oh, I, I have to make the move and, and it's a complete change. Mm. Like I know everything where yes. I am and you've got to go through, you know, different processes and different systems and different ways and, you know, when you've been for somewhere for so long, like 12 years is a really long time, you, 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 you've you got a sense of comfortability. Totally. And it's pushing yourself to get out of that comfort mm. level but, you know, I, I was very comfortable until I wasn't. Yeah. yeah. And then it was time to go. Yeah. So, look, with recruiting, it's not the sort of job you just walk into. You didn't sort of, you know, go and do a recruiting course. No. And uh, get your recruiting bit of paper and start. So how did you actually get into that industry? Where, where did you sort of come from? So recruitment isn't really anything anyone sets out to do. Everyone that I have spoken to, they naturally fall into the industry. Yeah. Um, I, I was previously in real estate. Yeah. Um, so as a real estate agent, sales agent, um, for about 
six or seven years. Um, and I, I come to learn very quickly within within the real estate game, and, and we're talking quite some time ago, it was still very much a, a, a male-dominant industry, mm. a bit of a boys' club. So it was very... Very rare that you'd come across females in those sales roles, um, very different to what it is now. Um, but, you know, there were sacrifices that females had to make in the industry back then, you know, um, around families and things like that. And I guess I started to think about, okay, what would it look like when I eventually got to that point of not being able to be around for kids' sporting games and and things like that knowing that it's a weekend job um so that's when I started to really put my feelers out there and sort of say what else is out there for me to really utilize my skill set and and Mm. be able to have it as as a transferable skill um and I went to see two um recruitment firms um and I sat down with with one of them who was um their their name at the time was select appointments but um they then were acquired by the Randstad um, group um, once I'd started um, and they just said, would you consider recruitment? I said, well, I'd um, definitely give it a go. I'm here, I can um, Why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, it was only a very small, um, whilst Rand, well, Select Appointments was a very large um, firm at that point in time, the, the location in Newcastle was only a very small office mm. um, and at that point in time they had tried with three other consultants to really lift the business support, so that's the, you, you know, your general office support division off the ground and they hadn't had any success. Um, you know, and they said they, they did explain that in the interviews and they sort of said, you know, you will be the last attempt um, to lift this off the ground for us, otherwise we're going to close that part of the business in Newcastle. So there was definitely no pressure. Mm. Um, but I was up for the challenge and I was, I was, I was ready, to, ready to do it and show them that we could definitely build it. Mm. So I'm interested, you know, so uh, a lot of people have said over the years that, you know, first job, if you can get a job with Maccas, it's a good place to start, right? Mm. So, so what, what did real estate tell you, teach you that has helped you make successful today? Well, I mean, real estate wasn't the first job I had. I, I, yeah. I, I'd been in as a travel consultant prior to that mm-hmm. and, you know, a few different other things. Um, but the the skills in in that was really being able to um, being able to build relationships and being able to um, converse with you know a broad range of, of um, people from from all different mm. diverse backgrounds and um, you know it, it creates a level of influential skills negotiation skills mm. um, you know and probably the biggest thing which I tend to believe was lacking in the industry back then was establishing a base of trust. Um, You know, it's one of those things where a lot of people in that industry, and I'm I'm talking quite some time ago, um, didn't have a lot of faith and trust in in sales agents back then and and I think that's where I really um, started to create a foundation of building that, Um, you know, and that's that's probably one of the biggest things that I've learned, which is interesting because having that skill in recruitment is also quite a significant um, piece to the puzzle of being quite successful in our industry. Mm, mm. Yeah. Okay. So travel before that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm just guessing at the moment. So 15 years in recruitment, real estate for six or seven. I mean, you only look like you're about 28. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I started very young. young. Very young. (laughs) So so what was the first job and how old were you then? Uh, Very, very first job Mm. where I started earning money. Mm. I think I I wasn't at legal age of of what they call it, what, 14 and nine months. I Mm -hmm. think I was just shy of 14 and um, got my first job at the local fish and chip store. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, learnt hard work from a very early age. And do you remember, were you were you pushed to get that job? Is that something you wanted to do yourself? So, you know, possibly, you know, talk a little bit about family life at the age of 14 and nine months and money and and why you ended up getting that job. Yeah, I, um, I, it's, it's, I come from a more of a country town, um, you know, and my, my parents had me at a very, very young age, teenage years. Mm. Um, so babies having babies, I guess, mm. I guess you would say, um, you know, and, um, credit to them both in the fact that they, they worked very hard, but they also lived from week to week, you know, mm. it wasn't, they weren't set out, they weren't setting out to establish careers. They were, they were in jobs, mm. um, you know, and so it was a week-to-week thing and so money wasn't something that was um, accessible regularly or something that was discussed in the home. It was, it was always about, um, you know, keeping uh, bills down and costs down and, and not spending extravagantly and, um, you know, even to the point where, you know, certain groceries were bought and, you know, you didn't go out and buy, you know, luxury treats and things like that. Um, so I think for me, you know, if if I wanted to have my own pocket money and I, I didn't really get pocket money mm. um, and buy my own things and, you know, as you, as you, you know, go into those teenage years, there's certain clothing brands and everything, my parents would never bought any of that. That was something that was a, a luxury that they couldn't afford and I, I – wanted to go out and make my own money to have have the opportunity to buy the things that I want and save for the things that I wanted. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And 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 that worked for you. It did. Um, but it, I think if I look back now and, and I look at generations today as well, the younger generations coming through, it did establish the, a very good framework of, of understanding what hard work is and understanding that, um, you know, you have to work hard to get the things that you want. Um, you know, back then we're talking $5 an hour in the hand, mm. so it wasn't a lot of money. Um, but it, it satisfied my hunger for wanting to break out of the the cycle of living week to week like my parents had whilst they worked really really hard um you know they they were still limited in what they could provide and what they what they could you know achieve in in their own um right and lives as well Mm, okay so obviously um you know you you mentioned it you gained a good work ethic from from that Mm. where else did your family talk into you? Do you think, you know, if you look back and reflect on yourself now and go, I can so see that, you know, my upbringing and, and where I've come from and, and what's happened has actually created who you are today? Yeah, I think, you know, as I said, you know, credit and kudos to my parents who worked really, really hard, like even to the point where my father would constantly always work every um, overtime shifts and every weekend to, you know, top up, you know, what they, the financial side of, of what they had available to them. And that could be so that we could go on a camping trip. Mm. You know, there was no overseas trips or, um, you know, getting on a plane. It was It was always, you know, going camping and pitching a tent and things like that. So it was it allowed them the affordability to to do that, um, and I guess my you know witnessing that and being a part of it, I just knew that I I wanted to have something that 
that um, it was a bigger purpose for me to, to create um, a life that gave me a little bit more, more stability um, and, you know, allowed me to um, have the luxury things that I wasn't exposed to. Mm. And I think that, that old adage, if you work really hard, you're going to be okay, mm. you know, we've shown that that's not, not really the case in the end, is it? You can work really hard and be still earning you know, a very minimal wage. Yeah. Um, you know, you can even either, even go to university mm. uh, and do degrees and still come out only earning, you know, a very sort of set wage. Mm. So it does really change, and you know, how you look at things and how you reflect on things as to as to what you can do for yourself to to improve that. You know. Mm, absolutely, and I think you know, for me, it was also um, looking forward. You know, where mm. did I want to be, and and. What did that look like? But then, you know, did I want to have a family and what did I want my children mm. um, to, what did I want to give them? Um, mm. And it's not about just giving them, um, you know, tangible items and things. It's about giving them certain education and certain experiences. Um, for us, one of the biggest things that we love is we do love travelling and we, we do travel a lot. Um, and I, I genuinely love and, and a lot of the hard work that I put into what, what I do is to give them the experiences that, that we've been giving them of, of travel and culture and educating them around different ways of living and, you know, the world, mm. um, you know, and, and that's something that, um, that I was never able to be exposed to. So were you a good saver as a teenager or was it money in, money out? I was a very good saver. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I um, took the leap at the age of 17 to move from country to Sydney um, and that's where I entered the travel world. Um, you know, and I even remember being down in Sydney and I, I had um, this book with envelopes um, in it and one would say rent and one would say bills and one would say train fare into, you know, that's how I got into the city. And every week when I got my pay, I'd, I'd insert, you know, the amount for each one of those and that was that was my way of really keeping to the budget and, mm. and making sure that I was always secure mm. so I had that safety net. And, you know, I'd have my little spend there and my save, but I think the security of making sure that I could pay my way through what I needed to um, was always really, really important to me. And was part of that possibly out of a out of a, a fear of where you've come from? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Mm. Never wanting to be in a position where I I felt insecure because I wasn't able to pay for you know um, whether it be bills or you know whatever was coming in at that point in time. Um, yeah, security was huge. Mm. And it's funny because back then you know there was no. Probably the internet was pretty scarce. Scarce, yeah. So it wasn't like you could read the, you know, the latest book or you know, download a, a an audio book. I don't or anything even think like podcasts that. were no, around. They probably weren't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, you were very limited to the available um, tools that we have today. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. 
yeah, to give you the direction and and different ways to go. Like even to the point where you've got social media and you've got influencers and you know that that's an, an additional tool that we never had back then. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, the the tools were very limited. Mm-hmm. And we've often talked on our on our podcast about that that whole financial literacy in in Australia that that um, you know when you're younger, financial literacy the research is showing it's quite low. Mm-hmm. And what it tends to be is that over time, it, it's that you gain that knowledge through experience. Yes. You know, when you buy your first home, when you get your first investment, when you decide, hang on, I want to get managed, you know, get a managed fund and get shares, how do I do that? All of a sudden those things start happening, not because you're being taught it, but because you actually experience it through life. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like for you that would be very much the case. You know, you've come from somewhere where the financial literacy was quite poor and you've had to self-educate and actually, you know, come to that understanding yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Probably one of the biggest motivators as I, as I, when I moved out of home, um, still a child um, at 17, was that, um, you know, even though I wasn't in real estate at that point in time, I, I had a keen interest in property mm-hmm. and, you know, um, I did actually, you know, uh, look at books and and look up things around how you gained property portfolios and, um, you know, I, I bought my first house at 20, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that was my goal and I didn't want anyone involved with, with um, you know, being a guarantor or, or buying it with anyone. My mission was to do it myself, um, you know, and I also bought this very old house that I then renovated. I, I'd go to Bunnings on weekends and I'd do um, the the courses that um, they run, such as painting and tiling and, um, you know, for me it was, it was the achievement to be self-sufficient without needing um, anyone else to, to be able to fund or support me um, during that journey. Um, and one of the things that I was very adamant about is that I wasn't going to rely on a spouse to be able to do those things. I, it was something that I needed to do myself. Mm. Yeah. Mm, okay. As blokes, I'm feeling quite small at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so leading on to that, and I think what's important about, you know, even sharing that little bit about bunnies, you know, there's this um, you wanted to remain teachable. Yes, yes, constantly. Well, and and if I go back, I, I you know, let's talk about my goal around I, I bought my first house at 20, my second house at 22 and my third house at 25. Um, and knowing knowing the property market uh, and what my income was at that point in time, I, I wasn't afforded the luxury to buy beautiful houses. Mm. I had to buy houses that were really um, falling apart, um, you know, and so for me it was then about, okay, how do I get these into a condition where I can then rent them out and get a good rental return to, you know, balance and, and offset, you know, the interest that I'm paying. Um, so... Yeah, there was a very, very defined plan, but I, I had to learn and grow along mm. the way um, with little support and coaching and, and, and advice being provided. But in my mind, I was like, well, I need a higher level of rent, so I need to go and educate myself on, on you know, becoming a, a renovator um, to be able to, to do that. Mm. So moving on to, I guess, this concept of financial literacy and, um, and I guess the reasons why people don't get advice. 
right? So mm. now obviously you've gone and the Bunnings is probably an example where it hasn't cost you a lot to go to Bunnings except your own time, mm. right? So but have you got any thoughts about, I guess, why people don't ask for advice? I think it comes back to... Um, a lot of people are not educated mm. that the advice is out there and available. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that I, I look back on myself and, and you know, um, quite some time ago where um, the option of seeing a professional advisor or um, financial support and gain, gaining financial support was quite a, um, like it was, I guess it was exposing me around what I may not have done right mm-hmm. um, and looking at what I'm spending my money on. Mm. Like, so there's a certain sense of uh, exposure there. Um, so it makes you feel a little bit vulnerable. Mm. And I think that that does, if I'm feeling that way, then I would imagine there's a lot of people out there that would be feeling the same way. Like the judgment sets in. What do these people think of me? Mm-hmm. They've just looked at my finances. They've just looked at what I'm spending. What are they thinking right now? Mm. Um, and I also think another one is trust. Um I do believe historically, which I'm sure you might be able to agree, that um, that people, professionals in the industry, um, haven't always led an ethical path around it. So mm. it's the trust in the individual, and and I also believe, like probably one of the things that I've I've looked at is, are they walking the walk and talking the talk? Like if if they're giving advice on my finances. Um, are they have they done it for themselves? What have they achieved um, themselves, knowing all of this information and the advice that they're providing? So I think there's a lack of that in in the industry as well. I'm going to ask you a cheeky question. All right, yes. so and that is because you've come from the real estate industry, all right? Mm-hmm. So and obviously that's an industry that has its own colourful past, right? So, and so one of the things that I've quite often reflected in is that financial advisors haven't been perfect in the past, yet the the take-up rate of financial planners is probably about 20% of the marketplace, yet real estate agents have managed to still probably capture something around the 90% of the marketplace Mm. and their trust factor can't be too much different. No, no. Um, so is that ever anything that, you know, and I know we hadn't really talked about this before, but, you know, just thinking that through, you know, like what, what comes to mind when you think about that? I tend to believe that um, whilst real estate agents um, have their history um, of, of um, you know, and perception out there of, of, of you know, certain ethics, um, they're selling a tangible product, mm, okay. you know, and um, vendors and or buyers um, have a sense of value in what they're looking at and what they're buying, um, regardless of who is, I guess, influencing that transaction. Um, the challenge that you have is you don't have anything that's tangible mm. um, and the advice that you're giving is it's based on um, what you know. Mm. Um, and also your reputation, um, which is a little bit more challenging. Now, I wouldn't say that it's fair, <laughs> but that tangible piece probably, it, I believe it does have a big impact. It's, and it's a really good point because whether it's, you know, through Help My Wealth or any sort of advice, you know, which is about knowledge, it's about that, you know, I guess we live in a, you know, in a society today where there's so much information available. Mm-hmm. So so there is this natural tendency for people to go, I can get that for free. Yes. All right. So um, now, you know, which 
we might argue or say that, yes, but it's, there's so much information, it, it's very easy to also get the wrong information as well. And, and so finding the right person helps to cut through that 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 journey, but but I think you've made an excellent point. Well done for coming up with that on the spot. <laughs> I was going to add. I think it's also about long term, short term. Yeah. If you're selling a house, you're like, right, I need this sold within a month or two months or whatever else, and so you actually are motivated. We go back to that comfortable thing. Mm. I've got to get out of my comfort zone. I've got to find someone. I've got to decide. I'm going to trust this person. They're going to actually go ahead and sell it, and then we can go from there. When it comes to thinking about financial planning that's often a long-term goal it's not about i you know i need to change my finances today it's about going okay what's what's going to happen when i turn 50 when i turn 60 when i turn 70 do you know so i I think there's also a limit of 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 long-term short-term yeah and i think from a um from a a younger self prioritizing that financial piece um isn't something that um, people will look at first and foremost. Mm. You know, I think in my 20s and and um, I, I, I didn't prioritise it as, as probably as well as I should have. Mm. Um, you know, going into late 30s and early 40s, it is something that you look back and say, I should have done that. Mm. I also, you know, on reflection, um, the cost of the service it's a very unknown and it's a fear of, oh, if I go to someone, are they going to charge me? Mm. So I think the knowledge out there of what what it does cost and what that the regularity of that is and, um, you know, what do I get for what I pay, it's a very unknown because mm. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of firms out there that um, there's inconsistency with those costs. Like there's, there's such a big difference between one firm to the other. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm not in your industry, mm. but um, whether there's that's been regulated at all um, or if if it's it's up to the firms around what they actually charge. Mm. But I know back then, you know, that was probably one of the things that stopped me from reaching out to professionals. Oh, I just don't know if I can fund that right now. Mm. It wasn't a priority of importance. Mm. I'll make sure I cut you a check for your advice later on. So. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so moving on to Verve, right, and your current role in the recruitment industry, and, and I guess one of the things with you know that we believe is part of Help My Wealth is just that you know you can invest well, you can manage your finances well, but you have to manage yourself well and your career. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'm, I'm really well. We're really interested to just get a little bit of an understanding from you in terms of. So, when you see candidates, you know, if if you were to offer the listeners some advice around, you know, what does call it career management look like from a person today? What what do you see, and what are the what's the low hanging fruit that people need to be thinking about when it comes to managing their career? The biggest thing right now, and especially within the world we work right now, is really reviewing um, your skill set and making sure that there's a transferable skill set. You're constantly looking um, for that next um, area of development and and stepping up, you know, making sure that you're ready. Don't look look at your role right now. Mm. What's your next role? Mm. And constantly striving towards and working towards um, upskilling yourself for that. Um, the biggest thing that we know in the world of work right now is AI is taking over a lot of things. Mm. There are roles out there that will um, become redundant, you know. And if you're in a position where there's AI um, surrounding 
your your role or your workplace, you know, what does that mean for you and how mm. are you actually upskilling yourself to really make yourself more valuable and, and you don't become redundant? Or think about where you start diversifying your skills mm. to be able to move and pivot where you're going to be most valuable as well. Um, I think the biggest thing for people is, you know, constantly making themselves um more valuable to employers and upskilling is is huge. Um, The biggest thing that I would also um, say to a lot of people is, you know, make sure that um, you are networking internally and externally and that you are known and seen. Um, you know, and that um, the the leadership um, within your organisation understands the direction you're heading, you know, that communication piece and them knowing where you'd like to be, you know, in two years and three years and five years um, puts you in the spotlight to be earmarked for those next roles. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things that we know um, is approaching is the baby boomers are, are, are Um, approaching retirement Mm. you know so what does that mean for the next generation coming through and and two things there are employers actually um now succession plan succession planning for that and that movement because they're going to be a big gap of knowledge missing Mm. but then what are employees doing Mm. to actually be being put in, be able to put put in the spotlight, um, upskilling themselves to be considered for these, you know, senior roles. I, I think one of the things you said that I, that I just find so important is that putting yourself out there. The amount of times I've talked to someone and they say, "Oh, I want to. This is where I want to head." And you say, "Have you discussed that with your boss?" No, not not at all. You're like, well, unless you actually tell them where you want to go and what you want to do and where you, what you want to achieve, they can't help you get there. They may not even put you forward for a role that you really want to do because they have no idea that you're interested in going that direction. And as soon as they know you're interested, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to say, I'm really sorry, Bob, but you're not the right person for that role. You know, that allows you then to work out why. Or they're going to say to you, hey, yeah, we can train you, we can get you ready, we can move you forward, we can you know, do whatever you want to do. But if you don't actually put yourself out there, you're not going to find out the answer as to whether you're ready for it or not ready for it or what you have to do to become ready for it. Absolutely. And the questions that employees should be asking their employers is, this is where I'd like to be. Can you mm. tell me what I need to achieve to get there and how long it'll take me to get there? Yeah. Um, you know, the biggest thing that I can... I, the, advice that I can give um, employees or people who are in the workplace looking for for roles or whatever it might be is make a plan. Mm. At the end of the day, if you don't make a plan, then you plan to fail. Mm. That's the reality of it. Mm. Um, So you've you've got to have a plan and it it can't be a short-term plan. you know, view of what is the next 12 months, what's the next five years, Mm. you know, because it does take a staged um, approach. And also if you've got to up your skill yourself and that comes back to um, going outside of just the environment of of those um, soft skills, um, then it takes time. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing to bring up. So what's the difference in in your industry when you're talking to lots of, you know, people that are looking for different jobs or moving around, um, experience versus, you know, education. So certificates and diplomas and going to TAFE and going to uni and doing courses compared to the experience you've had. Is it is it 50-50? Is it 
70-30? Like what's the sort of percentage that, that people need to be able to do that? It's a really, really good question, especially in the current market. Uh, I mean, as you know and most listeners would know, um, it's been a skill short market for three years now. Um, you know, it, the biggest thing that people are looking for now, um, while some jobs require certain qualifications, it's come back to the soft skills. It's come mm. back to transferable skills and it's also come back to um, attitudes. Yeah. Attitudes and behaviours um, are a bigger requirement in terms of good ones as opposed to someone having a certificate or um, a certain qualification. So how does someone put that forward in, in an interview? I mean, you know, you're coming from one job, say, to another job, how do you – it's not like you can get referrals from your past job to say that you were a great team player or whatever else. Often, you know, you're not letting the job you're currently at know that you're looking for, for other other jobs. Well, you see a good recruiter and they advocate for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, no, and, and like, I'm, I'm going to be quite genuine. I was being cheeky there. That's right. um, But – Absolutely, like the, like in terms of what we do, mm. like we 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 create relationships with candidates. We mm. understand their direction and provide them support and guidance around which way they should go or solutions around um, options mm. of, of which way they can head. Um, we can talk to them about different organisations. You know, people have different um, ethics and and values and they want to find, well, I would highly recommend that they find an employer that has a really great alignment. At the end of the day, you have to love what you do, mm. but you've also got to have an employer that excites you with their vision and their mission. Um, so it doesn't just come back to money. It mm. comes back to the journey that you're on with the with with your employer and, and having an alignment there. So with with what we do, we, we really consult and we really talk to the individuals and then we um, we you know, identify and assess where they would be best suitable and introduce them to the right employer that we think would be great for them. Mm. Um, a lot of candidates don't present themselves well on a resume. They don't present themselves well sitting in front of someone if they haven't been coached accurately and properly. Um, so, and this is where we can come in and be that advocate and communicate that level of detail for them and also you know, for the employer to be able to um, be introduced to someone they wouldn't have ordinarily considered. And I think for the average Australian particularly, um, selling themselves is hard. You know, um, there's some people that's just natural, they can do it. Mm -hmm. But for the average person to walk into an interview and say, I am the best person for this job, there is no one that you're going to interview better, better than me, I am amazing. Most people find it very difficult to very actually confronting. put forward and, and go from there. So, you know, having a recruiter who can actually coach them, help them to say the right words, know how to actually put themselves forward, even from the point of view of I think a lot of people go for jobs and they haven't actually written out what are their positive and negative traits, mm -hmm. you know. So when the question gets asked, how do you answer that if you haven't thought about it beforehand and actually gone through it with someone else? It's quite daunting and I don't think a lot of people out there realise how much you have to prepare mm. to be able to go and sit in front of a prospective employer and, and absolutely sell yourself to the best possible way that you can. Um, and I would say that um, a lot of my team uh, are very good at 
coaching and sitting down with with their candidates before they go and meet one of our clients to really coach them through not not to say the right answers I think there's a, a misconception of um, we coach so that they say the right thing so the employer says yes mm-hmm. it's about getting reaching sorry it's about getting them to reach a level of comfortability to really talk about themselves and sell themselves totally. Absolutely. Um, because naturally as humans we don't sell ourselves very well good at selling other people but not ourselves. like it's not a a natural trait that that comes easily to people so we we get them to reach a level of comfortability to be able to do that and talk about themselves and really sell the the attributes that they don't realize they have until we bring it to their attention and so while we're talking about recruiting um you know i think a lot of people when they hear about a recruitment firm and they think about ceos and general managers and you know managers they, they don't think about the other jobs so like can you tell our listeners like what's the range of of sort of jobs that both your firm and other firms do yeah uh, every firm will be different in terms of what they specialize in if i specifically talk about verve partners um you know our roles will range anything from your, your general data entry receptionist administrator personal assistants right through to the executive um as i said before all of our recruiters are very um they specialize in their own area so they're mm. specialists And, you know, one thing that I would really recommend um, candidates and or clients that if you're going to go through a recruiter and and establish a partnership with a recruiter, don't don't gravitate to someone who's a generalist because mm. you're reliant on them to know everything about every sector and every market and expecting them to work with every client and every candidate. Mm. You know, the reason we've tailored our business to be true specialists is every one of our consultants only works within their own sector. Mm. So my engineering consultant only works engineering, Mm. which means she can really build um, a talent pool and a network that she is constantly talking to all the time and she will just work with clients who who she's able to place those candidates mm. with. Um, so to answer your question, you know, anything from that very entry-level role right through to executive, but then it comes down to the disciplines that we work across, being mm. legal, construction, engineering, and in their own right in those disciplines, um, you know, that's when they also uh, work with very junior candidates right to senior, you know, mm. whether it be law firms, you know, legal secretaries right through to um, qualified lawyers across all different spaces or engineering, your grads right through to, you know, your senior engineers and, and management roles in that industry. So it, it's specialised and then very entry level right to senior. And so if you're a young person and you're just starting out in your career and you're just sort of getting going, is it is it worth coming to see a, a you know, recruitment firm to say, hey, look, I, I don't have a lot of experience, but this is where I want to head? Or is it better for you to build up your experience first in a, in a certain area and then come to see a recruiter? We are a fee-for-service-based fee for industry, so clients actually pay us a fee to find them very experienced and very skilled individuals in the areas that they're looking. So for anyone who's a school leaver or very junior in their career, um, ordinarily it's very difficult probably for us to help them in that first instance. Mm. Uh, We would always recommend that they go and continue to upskill themselves, get a little bit more experience, and whether that be that they do some volunteer experience work Mm. um, within, you know, if they want to go office-based or whatever it might be that that they're wanting to venture into, get that build up. Um, most importantly also what they need is they need references as well. Mm. They need people to speak on their behalf around their performance.
performance and and how they've been able to, um, you know, uh, work well in, in the environment that they've been placed in. Once, you know, someone's built up a level of skills, that's when we can, we can then start supporting them as a recruiter. Um, but it does make it very challenging for us because we are a fee-for-service-based industry, so that experience is heavily reliant um, or our clients are heavily relying on us to have that. Because it's like you said, whether you're just starting out in your career or whether you've been doing it for 15 years, mm. you've got to have that, you know, goal. Where are you heading in one year? Where do you want to head in five years? Mm. So if you're 20 years old and you're just starting out in a job, where do you want to be at 25? Where do you want to be at 30? You know, and, and, and then actually have that set up to actually start moving towards that. If that means that you need to go and get a certificate or a diploma or a degree, then you start working towards that. Do you know what I mean? If it means that you need to have experience in the area, then you start developing experience, be voluntary or be paid. Correct. Yeah. I think the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge for um, young people Mm. Um, coming into the workforce um, and trying to identify what do they want to do. Yes. Um, I think what what I would say to them is, you know, what what do you enjoy doing? What do you mm. what what are you passionate about? Mm. So that they can then align that into the areas that they mm. go into. They have to love what they're doing. Yeah, and I find when I've spoken to a lot of younger people as well, it, it sometimes it's money orientated. They're like, oh, "Hang, I'm just trying to get a job. I just need a job for money." Do you know? And you go, "Well, well, hang on. All jobs are going to give you money." Mm. So, so that's a foregone conclusion. Now, the amount of money you get may may change, but you're going to get a job that's going to give you a reward financially. So take that off the table and start thinking about what do you love? What's, what burns, you know, what's your burn? What's your passion? Where do you want to head? And then go, okay, well, how do I actually achieve that? How do I, I get there? Mm. Um, someone that I, that I know is, is actually a, a zookeeper at, um, at Dubbo Zoo. He's the, he's the head of the Black Rhino enclosure. And it was really interesting talking to him. Um, you know, he's only a young guy, but, you know, the process for him to get from there to where he is now required an immense amount of voluntary work. You know, like he was working in a cafe at the zoo. Uh, he'd done all his courses, he'd done all his things, he could he could work in the zoo, but he, there was no job. Yeah. So he literally worked in a cafe in the zoo and was available to work voluntary wherever they needed him for any time. He did that for like a year and a half, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden they put him in casual. Then he kept on doing it, you know, voluntary, casual, he'd work, whatever they wanted him to. And then finally a position comes up and who are they going to offer it to? They're going to offer it to this guy that has shown that he's passionate and actually wants to do it. Dedication. Dedication. And then now here a few years later it comes up, hey, who's going to take over the black rhinos? And he's the obvious candidate because he's actually had a goal in place from a young age. Mm. And I also think, you know, People out there should be looking at mentors. Mm. Um, you know, whichever way avenue they want to go or industry they want to go into, who who is someone that they can look up to that's been really successful in that industry? Mm. The really interesting thing about mentors and perception of mentors is that people think once they've got one, they have to stay with them. Mm. You know, you, you outgrow your mentors. Um, you know, and and as a as someone who would be mentoring someone, you want that to happen. Mm. You want them to outgrow you so they mm. keep evolving and they keep growing. Yeah. Um, but something that I wished I had done back earlier on in my career was establish a good foundation of mentors who I looked up to, who who I was speaking to regularly and used them as a sounding board, as a growth um, stepping stone for myself. And I think actually formalising that. 
mm. and saying to the person, I, I really value your opinion. You know, would you would you help mentor me in this area? Yeah. You know, and, and I think, like you said as well, recognize where where they're good at. You know, they may be amazing in their industry, but are they good at finances? Mm. Well, then don't talk to them about finances. Talk to them about the industry that you want to do. You know, are they good with their relationships with their, you know, family and their children and their partner? Maybe yes, no. Well, then that's not the area that you get another mentor that's good that's good at that. So, so get people in their right lane. You know? Yeah, and I also think there's a perception out there that mentors are a cost or they're mm. expensive. Mentors don't have to be professionals who are just, um, you know, like coaches. Mm. Mentors can be someone who has been in your position and they've they've um, developed themselves and grown themselves and they're five years ahead of you, mm. you know, and you, you want to do it, uh, you want to walk a similar path to what they have. Um, so it doesn't have to be someone that you are forking out money to for their advice. Mm. It's someone that you're catching up with regularly and you talk about, you know, their journey and, and how you set out to your for your own journey. Mm. Um, I also recommend that um, for people starting out um, in their careers, um, establish an understanding of what, what networking platforms they should be involved with, um, whether it be in-person events, um, social, online. Um, even Newcastle, and you would have heard of it, has Honey Young Professionals. That's fantastic for people who are actually wanting to establish a really good career path and be constantly, um, you know, speaking to and collaborating with people of the same age who are, who are, really, really excited about their career journey. Mm. So I'm going to take you back a bit, all right? So you, obviously you've gone on this tangent. So I'm really interested in, and because not everyone understands this, is when you talk about soft skills, all right, so what do you mean? Like I think of, I remember at 19, my mum said, go and learn to touch type. All right, so and I remember going, blokes don't touch type, you know, like, so, but right now, today, now? Oh, I've loved it, absolutely well, loved it. I can actually tell you that, that one of the things I'm jealous of when it comes to Hamish is watching him touch type while he's doing something else or talking to me and I'm just like, how do you do that? Yeah. It is insane. Yeah. But I remember being at 19, 18 and being in a room full of women, all right, learning to touch type, being the only bloke in the room. Um, but it's a skill that you sort of go, okay, so is that a soft skill? Is that what you mean by a soft skill? And and if you were to talk through, um, you know, I, I don't know if you can think on the spot about any examples of people that you've come through where you've sort of gone, hey, this is the soft skill that you need to develop. What, what's some of that low-hanging fruit when it comes to those skills? Yeah, there is different opinions on soft skills. Um, mine very much gravitate to individual attributes around, we talked about, you know, what I learnt in real estate was mm. it, it was um, establishing those relationship building skills. Mm. It was establishing influential skills. Um, it was um, learning the craft and art of being able to uh, build a level of trust with individuals. Um, you know, the soft skills come back to the individual and around the how they're able to um, outside of just you know, gaining certificates and 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 skills and qualifications, typing could be seen as one of them. Um, but it's it's more about you know the attributes of an individual and bringing them out and being able to utilise them that would then base that on performance and behaviours. Mm. You know, soft skill very much relates to behaviours as well, um, and and how they how 
individuals can actually really drive them to then become a skill and a, and a craft. Mm-hmm. Um, the art of being able to influence, it's a very big soft skill, um, mm-hmm. not easy to do, mm-hmm. comes with time and, you know, listening to mentors and listening to the people around you, um, but it becomes a soft skill that becomes really important. Mm-hmm. So communication Huge. and leadership yes. um, or at least and almost understanding um, what it means to be a team player and not mm. sort of want to take over everything. You know, mm. like you'll get that person that sort of wants to, thinks that their job is to stay quiet and be in the corner and they need to get out of their skin. Mm. And then you've got the person that's too overt and too big, if mm. I can use that expression, that they almost need to go, wait a second, what's my space here? What, mm. what am I here to do? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I even think the art of collaboration is huge mm. um, because you're right. You've got people who will speak up and people who won't. But um, having someone or people in your team that actually collectively encourages everyone to participate mm. um, is is quite significant in, in you know, um, how your team will perform mm. and, and the engagement that you have. One of the questions I've heard lately, which, I don't know if you've heard of Gallup before, mm. um, Gallup. So, so Gallup Strengths Test it is. So, so they do a lot of research on workplace and they've, they've got this survey that they've uh, for managers and one of the questions that I'm actually just... Um, I've never asked in 20 odd years is so um, are you the sort of person that will tell me how you're feeling um, or do I have to ask what an interesting question and then the follow-up question to that is so how often would you like me to sit down and actually talk about how you're going and they're just one of those, they're just questions on, they're simple questions, right? So, but the conversations that come out of that when you ask the staff that is just, is just quite powerful. And I think actually it's a really important point to make is that you learn that. Mm. So sometimes these soft skills aren't innate within us. You know? yeah. uh, and I think sometimes people who are, say, more introvert feel as though I could never do that. You know, in the same way, people are more extrovert need to pull back. But it, it's funny, like, I never forget um, even just using that, that analogy form, um, you know, when it comes to talking to people and you're like, hang on, how do I actually bring up conversation? And that's, the, you know, family, organisations, recreation and money. Mm-hmm. And if you have that in your head, um, I've talked to lots of people who are introverts and said to them, that's all you need to remember. If you're ever in a conversation with someone, just start with family. If they're not talking about it, it's not a touch point for them move on to organisations. Mm-hmm. If they're not in an organisation and they're not doing anything, move on to recreation. What do you do when you're not working, you know? Mm-hmm. If that doesn't work, move on to money. I get, can always guarantee you that you will stop somewhere along that that form, you know, and the conversation will flow because the person will actually start talking about what, what's the touch point for them. And that's alert behaviour. Mm-hmm. You know, some people innately can do it, but a lot of people actually have to learn those soft skills. I also think that um, that that line of questioning has evolved over time as mm. well. Like if you ask questions like that twenty years ago, um, the response would be um, very very different. Mm. You know, we, we're now in a world where um, that emotional intelligence is mm. quite huge um, in being able to cultivate a, a team that. Um, you know, feels comfortable in their environment, feels comfortable in speaking up and, 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 and being 
able to talk. But um, the the offset of that is the fact that if we're able to create more of that in in the organisation, it does increase profit. Uh, sorry, it does increase performance. It mm. does increase um, productivity, and it does create a, a better culture for people to be really happy with where they are. Mm. Mm, oh, absolutely. So we've talked about soft skills, all right, So, and what we've talked about as well is just this concept of even being prepared as a young person to get in and get experience, you know, like and, and have that, that attitude, which is another word Chris only used before, like, you know, so what are some ways that, you know, when you're you know talking to candidates that you can sort of unpack what people's attitude is and what are they going in with, you know, like can you talk into that at all? Yeah, a lot of our line of questioning and you'll, uh, a lot of our consultants will will be um, very much adverse around uh, talking about behavioural-based interview questions. So it's assessing someone's um, approach to certain situations and how they, how they handle things and how they manage things. Um, and by way of, you know, asking those sort of questions and that line of questioning, we can really understand the individual and how they would operate in, a, in an environment. Um, leveraging off the experience of, of certain situations that they've um, they've been through previously with employment. Um, it gives us a true indication of, of an individual and, and how they will respond um, and react. Um, probably the, the biggest thing that I have um, realised throughout my career in recruitment is um, there's, there's two steps in that line of questioning and that conversation with candidates. One, it's the behavioural-based interview questions, which most recruiters, I would expect, um, follow through with following that process. The other one is feedback, um, which a lot of that doesn't happen for the candidate. So if you're speaking to the candidate and, you know, you're assessing them and you're asking these behavioural-based interview questions and there are responses that you feel are a bit of a alarming or, you know, probably not what the employer might be looking for or most employers looking for, what you find is a lot of recruiters out there will refrain from giving feedback around that. Mm. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that we, we like to offer is, um, you know, feedback for them to improve. Mm. If they don't know, how do they ever have the opportunity to to grow and develop themselves in their next interview or their you know um, their next job application? Um, so something that we're really really um, driving in the business and and um, very adamant about doing is providing that feedback. You know, if a candidate says um, you you ask them a behavioural based uh, question interview question, and it's about a situation that they they handled in the workplace, which uh, presented to be a conflict with another colleague and their response isn't necessarily the one that you would generally gravitate to, then you coach them around it. Mm. You say, it's really interesting that, that, that you would respond that way. Tell me more about that. Ordinarily, it's probably not a favoured behaviour within workplaces. You know, how would you like to improve that? Mm. That is lacking um, in a lot of um, interview scenarios mm. um, for individuals. And... I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I thrive on feedback. It helps mm. me grow and, and develop and become better if it's delivered the right way mm. and with the intent of being genuine and helpful. Mm. Um, I believe most people would be quite receptive to it. It must be challenging, though, at times being in a tight labour market when you get, um, you know, some of these statements that come out that you sort of go, oh, okay, I need to give the feedback, but I, possibly I don't have a lot of candidates for this role and then trying to assess whether that person is still suitable to be put forward to the employer. Does that 
that is that a bit of a tension at times? It's fr- it's definitely frustrating, mm. but I think for for our business, and I only speak for our business. Um, it's not about getting a placement and getting an invoice out. It's about getting the right person that is a suitable fit. And at the end of the day, um, we offer um, a replacement guarantee. Very rarely do we ever have to use it. And commercially, we don't want to have to use it. We want to get it right the first time. Um, primarily, um, you know, 70 to 80% of our business is repeat business. And it is that because we don't focus on just getting a placement and a fee and, and raising an invoice. We focus on getting the right person and making sure they don't have to go through that process again. So, yeah, look, it can be a little bit frustrating. She's like, oh, they've got every single mm. um, skill that this client has asked for. But unfortunately, if, it, if they're not going to be the right fit culturally and um, it only takes one person to go into an environment and turn um, a really great business and a really great team um, upside down, so mm. to speak, mm. um, to ruin what was there, um, you know, we don't want to be the individuals who who are a part of that. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Mm. Yeah, well, I know, um, you know, we were talking about another interview earlier on and there can be this, you know, conservative or old-fashioned type, you know, why can't people just appreciate they've been given a job versus, you know, the current environment, which is, you know, young people basically, you know, quite often saying, well, wait a second, I'm in, I, I feel like I'm entitled, I'm not necessarily saying entitled is a bad way, but, you know, I need to be treated well and I need to um, command respect as well. So, you know, there is this, these two battles going on, isn't there, and mm-hmm. just, you know how how the workplace thing. works. Well, I mean, I think both those two things can be right. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like the employer needs to expect a certain level of teamwork and, and accountability and, and, and work ethic from their employer, employee and the employee wants an employer who's going to treat them well and, and you know, look after them and not, not be in a, in a bad team environment or go home feeling, you know, anxious and have high anxiety from the day, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest contribute contribution to a lot of what's going on right now and and I guess the the, the tension and the tug of war around it is that more and more people have um, been exposed to what does uh, health and well-being look like mm. and being in an environment that is able to support a really healthy balance um, you know whilst the I guess, for lack of a better term, the old school term is, you know, you've got a job, you get paid, you should be happy. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that that environment that they're in creates a happy environment and contentment, you know, and the biggest thing that is being discussed, um, you know, within workplaces and outside of workplaces is health and wellbeing, Mm. you know, and I think that the biggest um, (coughs) biggest step businesses can make is to find... Um, will establish an understanding around what their employees really want from their employer mm. but also set some boundaries around what the employer wants from an employee mm. as well. So it has to be a nice even balance. That has to be set right at the beginning prior to anyone joining the firm so that both parties can see an alignment. Mm. You know, if, if, if that employee potential employee doesn't see a sense of value in those boundaries, then... 
you know, it's best that they don't join the business and vice versa. It's interesting. You talked earlier on about um, that, you know, possibly for the next couple of years and also the last few years that the employment market has been, you know, quite tight and you've touched on AI a little bit. Mm. One of the things that we're sort of now starting to hear on the financial planning side is that um, this gap in employment could go on for 30 or 40 years. Uh, and and the, the reason for it is, is there's sort of this story that goes something like this. You know, you talked about COVID and how it fast-forwarded some people's mm. decisions, right? Mm. And so, so what happened was maybe before COVID, there was this logic that said, well, for every person that retires, a new person's coming into the workplace, all right? So now what happened with COVID is that um, 5%, Five, five people retired and only one person came back into the workplace. And a lot of school leavers as well were a little bit delayed, right, in terms of they weren't allowed to have that social interaction that they that prior generations would have gotten. So there's, there's almost this, well, wait a second, we had, we've left five leave, one's come in, but really it's going to take that one a little while to, to grow up and be, um, you know, a valuable part of the workforce. All right, so so now of course we only had six percent unemployment. All right, so and now it's dropped to three, but we had five leave and one come in. So there's this gap, and of course as time goes on, all right. So um, you know by I think it's 2040, right? Um, America, China, um, a lot of parts of the world are going to be in declining populations. Right. So, and and off the back of that, you know, so we're all farming out of you know Africa and some parts of Asia to try and bring this immigration in because they're the only parts of the world that's really growing right mm. from a population perspective. So the, the logic is: is AI going to take the jobs away, or do we almost need the AI? Right to actually keep everything going, and I think you both agree that you know how how recently, if you tried to call a bank or a, a some sort of provider and stay on the phone for forty five minutes or an hour because they can't get the staff, mm. you know. Mm. So, um, th- so this environment that we're in at the moment, it may actually go on for quite a long period of time. Mm. Um, so, so it'll be interesting, and, and that's where possibly you know industries like recruitment. Well, okay, it could be. It could be, you know, a good season to really say, okay, how do we really, you know, make sure that we're positioned to be able to be that meet, meet, intermediary? Is that the word I'm mm-hmm. looking for? Yeah, that actually sits in between for all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's, it is really interesting and I think this is where I've, I've touched on it before, be, being a specialist at, um, recruitment firm and and having a dedicated focus to an industry and sector with our consultants allows them to build the network mm. required. Now, network inclusive of clients and potential candidates for the future. Um, you know, job movement is still, still happening out there. Um, I was only reading the other day that... Um, job mobility in the last 12 months um, is at its highest peak in the last 10 years. And I I believe it's 1.3 million Australians um, in the last 12 months have left a job. So there's still movement out there. What I think and I believe the impact of it is is that people have left industries, they're upskilling, there is a delay in the skills, um, people being able to reach the level of skills that are needed within workplaces um, and the training component involved, um, that's where you will see the significant impact. People are still leaving jobs. Um, people are still getting new jobs. Um, you know, and interestingly enough, the big and biggest reasons that they're leaving is, you know, um, they're wanting 
progression. Um, so whether or not they're coming into to businesses and, um, you know, training and, and upskilling but not moving fast enough, um, poor job satisfaction, people are wanting to, um, they, they are leaving for either more money or benefits. Benefits is a huge requirement these days within organisations. Some people are moving for benefits before leaving for money, mm. which is really, really interesting. And a lot of people out there, um, you know, still are uneducated business operators around benefits. Mm. Um, what are benefits? You know, some people think that oh, letting a, someone go to a doctor's appointment during work hours is a benefit. Others are, are really upping the ante on their benefits. We've we've introduced um, a quarterly mental health day for full-time permanent employees. Um, we're offering um, some end-of-year family leave that is paid during a closure period for, for employees. Um, there's so many different things that we're starting to offer. There's, there's gym memberships, there's um, health and wellness. We've got a wellness committee in our business where um, three employees run that and we provide them a budget. So they're constantly doing different things all the time to, you know, support that balance of health and wellbeing. They're all the benefits that, mm. um, that uh, people out in the market are looking for. Hybrid working models, huge right now. Mm. Um, the concept of people wanting to work from home 100% has diminished. Obviously, we're, we're past that phase. But people have started to realise that it, a hybrid model offers them a, a balance mm. of, for example, if you've got families, you know, dropping kids off, picking them up. But the biggest thing that I've seen, which it, it does impact um, the, the livelihood of families, is before and after school care. It's mm. really expensive. Mm. You know, if, if businesses are offering hybrid model and, and flexibility around those hours, it means that families don't have to spend so much on those before that before and after school care and they can pocket that money themselves and put it towards other things that they're, they're trying to save for or, or, or bills. Um, so they're the key benefits that are really driving people's motivation in the market at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, we're actually coming to the end of our podcast. So I, I did want to actually put forward, so we've got a question here for you. So I want you to finish the following sentences. Are you ready? Sure. The problem with money is... The problem with money is uh, creates too much power, but it also creates greed. Nice. Mm. Mm. Okay. Keep going. Okay. Money can't buy happiness, but it can. It can buy opportunities. Mm. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Now, we do like to ask all of our guests, if you could give some advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to her? <sighs> So much. <laughs> How long have you got? Um, I probably the the key advice that I would give to myself is don't compare. Yep. Um, don't compare yourself. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. Yep. Um, live at your own expectations and not through anyone else's. Yep. Um, and trust your instinct. Yep. Yeah. And our last question we always ask everyone is, if you were going to write a book, what would the title be and what would it be about? Oh, wow. Um, I'm not sure anyone would read it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I would, it, would, it would be about a journey of me, but um, I'm considered to be the black sheep in the family. Yeah. Um, and I've always probably 
uh, gone against the grain and and not gone with the crowd. So I guess I'd have to go with something around living living as the black sheep. Yeah, well, we've, had, sheep. we've had a marketing book on the purple cow. So oh, have you? Take that one. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So you can you can be you can be the you know living as the black sheep. Yeah, yeah. Or live like the black sheep. I think perception of the black sheep has always been a negative one, but there is a positive um, oh, totally. positive to it as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, I think most people that have uh, done well in in life would often say they've swum against the tide. Do you know what I mean? They've, yes. they've, they've gone against what other people are doing, you yeah. know. So so I think that to, to be successful, you sort of have to be a bit of a black sheep in a way. You do. And if you're following a crowd, you have to see what they've achieved first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, look, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate thank your you. time. Thanks and, for having um, me. We've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. So it's been, been good to have you. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. <laughs> So thank you again for listening to the Help Wealth podcast, Money Rules, Money Rules. Uh, it's been really great to have Crystal here with us and we've really appreciated listening and learning about uh, recruitment and about jobs and about life. Mm. So thank you again and we'll see you at the next podcast. Bye for now. Bye. Information discussed by the Help My Wealth and the Money Rules, Money Rules podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is generally nature and it is not advice. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. It is aimed to provide a general understanding of each topic and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. It is strongly suggested that you seek professional advice regarding your own individual circumstances before making a financial decision. Help My Wealth and the hosts of the Money Rules and Money Rules podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. In the spirit of reconciliation, Help My Wealth and the Money Rules or Money Rules podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to past, present and emerging elders. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.